This episode of Security Management Highlights is sponsored by Alert Enterprise, cyber-physical security convergence with a human-centered approach, fueling digital transformation and unlocking competitive advantage. Alertenterprise.com, that's security 2.0. Yeah, I think it goes back to the, the, this use of sophisticated social engineering techniques. So while if it's a simple ID loss threat, you can look at a pattern of behavior in an account and spot anomalies, and then you can stop those transactions. But where an individual is choosing to take their own money because they've been socially engineered and, and send it, it's very difficult to even stop those people. And this is where I think so there, there are going to be some security professionals who are who are going to come out of COVID, when, whenever that is or whatever the world looks like when we come out of it, with a significantly enhanced portfolio and profile within their own businesses because they've they've put their hand up and they've and they've managed the risk they've, they've managed the challenge that's, that's been brought to the business all that and much much more on this month's edition of security management highlights helen wood is a uk-based independent consultant on financial crime and associate fellow at the center for financial crime and security studies at the royal united services institute a london-based defense and security think tank Prior to establishing her consultancy, Helen has spent 15 years in public service in the UK with roles in the National Crime Agency, HM Treasury, and Charity Commission. Helena Wood, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Today's topic is synthetic identity fraud. I think this is a fascinating concept because there's a difference between synthetic identity fraud and identity theft. Two different things. So let's define synthetic ID? Well, my understanding of this phrase, it's really about someone taking an existing uh, identity. So people you know, like your government uh, government agencies, uh, your bank, and really spoofing that identity. So they can take their email address, they can take their phone number. And so when that, that number comes through and you check it, it really seems like it's a credible person that you're used to dealing with and that takes the kind of the issue of fraud into a whole new space uh, it's very difficult for the individual on the street to really kind of get through who's real and who's not and it's really kind of testing our own perceptions of reality and affecting our behaviors uh, both online and offline yeah it's it's a false identity made up of real components i remember back in the day i was a rookie police officer san gabriel 1984 the bank calls me. Hey, Chuck, uh, we got your credit application. I said, I put in a credit application. Had my sister's correct name and address on it. And this is all handwritten stuff, by the way, right? It had a lot of real components of my background and family. And back in 1984, there was no computers to search all this stuff. Somebody had to be close to me to know this. And had that gone through, somebody would have had a fake identity using real information, which would have been really much more damaging. Give, give us an idea on... Uh, on how this thing works? How do people process this information? Why do they fall victim to this? Well, you know, people are getting really, really sophisticated with how they perpetrate fraud. And, you know, they're able to access the different tools they need through kind of cyber marketplaces. So, you know, we're all familiar with the dark web now, but those guys have their own kind of shopping malls online where they can swap different tools to kind of buy different tactics and tools that they need to perpetrate these frauds. And they're really, you know, as the banks, you talked about your own experience back in the 80s, but, you know, the banks have got a lot, a lot savvier around fraud and they have, you know, pretty cool systems and processes in place to kind of design out fraud from their systems. But this has just, you know, forced those fraudsters to get a lot smarter 
and be a lot savvier about how they present themselves to us. So they they really are using, you know, all of these tools and techniques they pick up in the cyber world and then adding to those the kind of social engineering techniques that can really draw even the smartest person into a scam. Well, if I can take you on a little thought experiment and take you and your listeners there, um, let's think about a new threat that emerges onto the street. And this threat is starting to kind of attack people in their own homes. It's causing an increased loss to life from suicide. It's even bringing down businesses or at least impacting on their share prices. You know, it's preventing the state from delivering essential services, you know, time of crisis like this, getting people to access vaccination, for example. You know, it's fueling a terrorism and serious organized crime threat. And it just keeps blooming and growing and growing as we kind of increasingly live our lives online to the point where it's now costing globally $3 trillion, which is roughly the GDP of where I'm sitting now in the UK. You know, if that new threat emerged, you'd think that the kind of national security apparatus would start jumping up and down and going nuts. Um, but this threat, it's not a new one. This is a very old threat and it's one we're all very familiar with. It's possibly one of the oldest crimes there is, apart from the one I won't mention. But, you know, this threat's broad. It's so broad reaching in nature. It's impacting on individuals, it's impacting on our businesses, and it's starting to really undermine, you know, government's ability to deliver essential services. So you kind of put that all back together and you're talking about a really huge threat to our national security and way of life more generally. I'm sure you you are the same as me, you get at least one email, text or kind of phone call a day from a scam. It's just out, completely out of control. So maybe that's just in, in the UK because our response is so poor here. Um, but it just feels like a kind of attack on you and your own home in the you know the way you operate and it's really reducing kind of trust and confidence in e-commerce particularly which is going to be you know the future of commerce well it's interesting you say that i i don't think it is an exaggeration to say uh in my personal experience that i receive at least one fraudulent contact a day at least one and oftentimes it's yeah, more than one easily yeah it's gonna be interesting to see where this goes as kind of hostile state actors start to realize that this can be a really useful and cheap uh, destabilizing tool. Would you say that that the majority of this now are just independent contractors doing this for a living or is it really shifted to state state attacks? I think it's still broadly speaking organized criminals but I think from what I hear it's a groups of organized criminals where states are aware and they are turning a blind eye because it's being targeted targeted mainly against kind of US, UK, Canada, and they are people we don't like. So they're sitting in nations where they could do something, but they won't because why would you? Or, um, you know, kind of fraud factories in countries where the rule of law is pretty weak, where law enforcement's corrupt. And that's just having that extra corroding impact on those already weak and fragile states which they really don't need and then if that tips over you get into kind of you know state capture issues oh yeah so you kind of get rather than having drug nations you'll have fraud nations oh. um so yeah i think it's just massively out of control well i think i read somewhere in 2013 there were 70 billion that's a b 70 billion data records breached that's 10 times the people on planet earth 
yeah and it doesn't doesn't surprise me and that that's definitely going to keep on growing but I definitely don't think it's just an ID theft issue anymore and as we've touched on you know we're moving away from simple ripping off your records and stealing money straight from your bank account into what I think is a more insidious threat and and it's that's around kind of engineering you to take the money out of your bank account and hand it over to the criminal yourself which is much more difficult to investigate it's much more opaque in terms of the banking response like who's responsible there um, and it's much more uh, psychologically impactful on the individuals who've kind of faced that threat so I think ID theft yeah it's going to continue to be a huge enabler of fraud but I think people are shifting and getting more sophisticated and really getting inside people's heads and that's having a much bigger impact and you know, when I go back to that kind of national security threat angle that we've looked at, it's it's about changing people's way of life, changing their trust in systems, changing their trust in processes. And that, for me, is a much more concerning prospect than simply ID theft, which doesn't have that same kind of psychological impact on victims. I agree 100%. The broader threat here is trust, right? If people can't trust their institutions, they can't trust their government, they can't trust their neighbor, if Anything somebody says to you has to be questioned, and we think everything going on is fraud, that is going to impact every aspect of life. This is really a much more serious issue. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we kind of published a paper uh, through the Royal United Services Institute think tank uh, in London I I work for, uh, which is pointing this out. It's it's looking beyond fraud as a simply financial loss threat, and it's really more going into how fraud is starting to undermine our way of life. And particularly in the UK, where the policing response absolutely hasn't been where it, it should be, it's fundamentally kind of undermining our confidence in the, the rule of law, our trust in policing, and kind of undermining, if, if I'm not going drifting into hyperbole, you know, it's undermining our, that compact between the state and citizens about, you know, you give up a small element of your freedoms in return for protection from the state, and people just don't feel they're getting that protection. Um, but even further to that, you know, we look at the the way we're living now in the COVID crisis. Um, I'm sure it's the same over your side of the pond, but we're starting to see those criminals use COVID as a, a vector of the threat. So around vaccination, for example, we've seen um, a huge opportunity taken by fraudsters to use uh, vaccination scams, getting people to hand over money uh, for vaccinations. Um, and that's, you know, it's undermining something that's going to be really fundamental as we uh, go forward through the pandemic. And they're also using the vulnerability presented by people sitting at home, almost sitting ducks in front of their computers, living their lives online, um, and not having that check and balance of being out in society to, to kind of engineer against these, these scams that they're putting out there. So I think COVID's really accelerated a problem that's already there, but it's really risking, threatening a kind of very fundamental way of life that's uh, the same here in the UK where I sit as in the States, you know, the rule of law is sacrosanct and kind of key to um, the bedrock of our society and how we live on both sides of the pond. Well, I agree. It's literally ripping up our social contract that we use between each other to get along day to day, literally. If I can't trust the guy standing next to me at the grocery store, uh, that's problematic. And that's much more difficult than a financial loss. Now, here's what I would have thought. With today's sophistication in technology, my belief was our algorithms are better. We can be better at detecting this because of the technology involved. And it seems to me it's going the opposite direction. We're, we're not as good at detecting this stuff. 
Why aren't we ahead of the criminals on this? Yeah, I think it goes back to they, the, this use of sophisticated social engineering techniques. So while if it's a simple ID loss threat, you can look at a pattern of behavior in an account and spot uh, anomalies, and then you can stop those transactions. But where an individual is choosing to take their own money because they've been socially engineered and, and send it, it's very difficult to even stop those people. So uh, whilst I've been researching this subject, I've been speaking to people who work in the financial sector here in the UK, and even where those scams have been pointed out by bank managers to individuals, people still don't, they've been so sophisticatedly engineered by the criminals, they don't believe their own bank manager telling them to not send money over. And you know, the bank isn't legally able to stop the customer from sending that money. So it's, it's really, really getting more and more difficult as people are getting outside of our bank accounts or into our heads. And that for me leads it to being, you know, we're never going to tackle this problem through a pure law enforcement response. Although um, your background and mine as ex-law enforcement uh, officials, we, we probably want to think that law enforcement do everything. But I think on this particular threat, we can't. And it has to move towards the kind of players that usually uh, work in the sort of counter-terrorism space. So on our side of the pond, GCHQ, your side, NSA, it has to go into a disruptive model to really cut, cut off the line to inquiry. So cut off the telecoms, cut off the social media channels, um, cut off the search engines that are kind of promoting this. Um, so it really has to go in, for me, to more disruptive approach to fraud that goes beyond uh, what the criminal justice system or even the banking system can achieve. Now, that's an interesting point. I, I have pretty good confidence in the banking system as far as their technology. And, you know, they're always battling this, of course, but they really make an active effort to keep on top of this sort of thing. But the social media platforms, you know, not regulated the same way. I think this new version of an old problem is really driven by social media. I think this is where it, it grows the most. What can we do to work on that side of it? Where can we be disruptive on the social media side to, to stop these fake identities from popping up? So yeah, I think there's definitely a growing conversation with the social media companies and search engines for that matter to kind of come and play nicely uh, in the counter-fraud space. So we know the banks have been quite sophisticated at tackling this, but that's not without reason. Um, they've very much been forced to the table on fraud because it costs them money. It hits their bottom line uh, with the payments they have to make out to victims or the system's cost or generally just by being a better regulated entity and an expectation from customers. But for the social media and the search engine side of, of the house who are really also quite key facilitators of fraud, there's nothing really to bring them to the table at the moment. Um, so we have to look at the conversation differently. It's not costing them anything, but we have to put the pressure on them to see this as a, a responsible corporate citizen issue. And I definitely feel from the UK side of the house, there's being an increased pressure on those agencies to do something of their own accord or face regulation, which they obviously want to avoid. So I think with the social media companies, it really has to be a little bit of social pressure from victims and highlighting more evidence around the role they play in facilitating these frauds uh, to bring them to that negotiating table with governments, I think. Give me some ideas on what the average person do to get ahead of, to get ahead of this uh, problem. So one thing I've done in recent years is I've come up with basically a just say no policy. If I don't know you, if I don't know your phone number, if I don't recognize the email, I just don't open and respond to anything. And if it's that important and legitimate, somebody will find another way to contact me. 
So yeah, there's a lot individuals can do. And the, the mantra I live by is, if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. Um, but that only works if you're quite a cynical individual, uh, possibly someone with a law enforcement background. So I think there's, uh, stay informed. I mean, there are loads of channels to kind of highlight new scams. So we have uh, a service called Action Fraud in the UK, which highlights new and emerging scams. And I think those scams will be equally common to uh, your listeners over in the States uh, because, I mean, we are both targeted countries for, for the purposes of fraud. Um, but it really is just taking time uh, to consider what you're doing. Pause is the biggest thing I should do. Don't rush in. These people will try and put pressure on you. So, for example, investment frauds, there will be uh, an impetus to kind of go quickly, otherwise you'll miss out the opportunity. But always pause. And I always think, you know, ask your neighbour, ask your friend, ask your family member. Uh, and sometimes in, in the asking, you will find the answer that it will be. It just seems too good to be true. So step back. If in doubt, don't, I would say. Helena Wood, we've been speaking about synthetic identity fraud and it starts national security. Ms. Helena, thank you very much for coming on Security Management Highlights. It's been a really good conversation. Thanks for having me. It's been great to speak. This episode of Security Management Highlights is sponsored by Alert Enterprise. Visit them at alertenterprise.com. Here to talk about cyber physical security risks is Mr. Mark Weatherford. Mark is the Chief Information Security Officer at Alert Enterprise and guides the strategy of data management and protection, advising cyber physical security policies and procedures within the company. Mark is also a former member of the Homeland Security Advisory Council and has held numerous high-level cyber-centric positions, including Vice President and Chief Security Officer at the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Mark, while cyber-physical convergence is not a new concept, there's a whole new sense of urgency towards this approach. What factors do you think are driving this shift? Uh, I think there are a couple things, Chuck. First is the cost savings and efficiencies that are gained through convergence. By converging technologies and staffing from multiple organizations into one overarching security team with multiple disciplines, that team becomes more efficient, and most companies realize savings in the overall security program. Secondly. The overall security of the organization is enhanced through broader visibility and information sharing between formerly siloed security teams. Convergence allows a single security team to be able to connect the dots in a way that's not possible when multiple teams exist in an organization. They simply don't have the big picture perspective available through the common operating picture afforded by converged security organizations. As Jasper Gill often says, when a security event happens at a remote facility, organizations need to know whether to send somebody with a wrench, a gun, or a laptop. Security convergence solves that dilemma. Mark, what immediate steps should utilities and other organizations take to address today's cyber physical risks and threats? Well, in addition to all of the traditional security controls that are available, but probably not very consistently deployed in a lot of organizations, such as badge management, employee provisioning and deprovisioning, and routine security control issues, identity management is really key. Identity management is not a new concept either. In fact, it's one of the fundamental and historical concepts of security. What is not yet as fully embraced is the concept of physical identity access management that addresses all employee, contractor, and visitor identities across the entire enterprise. Physical identity access management systems that integrate human resources, 
information technology, operational technology, and physical security that tie everything together for role-based logical and physical access is simply a smarter and more secure way of unifying security across the entire corporate or organizational enterprise. Mark Weatherford, Chief Information Security Officer at Alert Enterprise, alertenterprise.com. Mr. Mark, thanks for coming on the show, my friend. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. James Moore, CPP, is the Head of Security Services at Aon for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and a UK chapter member of ASIS International. James is also a former member of the Board of Directors for ASIS International UK. James Moore, CPP, welcome back to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks for having me back. Today's topic is global management, how security is changing in Western Europe. Now, this is a really interesting topic. You know, you work in, in out of England, but you're head of security services for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, working for Aon. So you see a lot of things going on. Just give me a general statement about what you think is the biggest change, and then we're going to fine-tune this and try to get to the bottom of it. I think you look back at the, at the last 12 to 15 months, and there's been so much change that has happened but on so many different levels and so many different pace that, you know, so, you know, obviously I'm based in the UK, as you said, look over the, almost literally over the water and you can see the French and, and you know, they're about as close as two countries could possibly be. But the reality is that, you know, we're, we're all doing things very differently. And, and from, from a business perspective, particularly, you know, we're, we're a multinational organization, we're in about 120 countries, but it's been hard keeping up with, what everyone is doing and the, just the, the, the changes and the different pace and, and trying to like, okay, so what's, what's the office in Finland doing this week and what's Spain doing this week? You know, it's been something that I think started off looking so small has had such a huge impact on every single facet of every single thing that, that we do that it's sometimes hard to forget that, you know, we're security professionals and we still have a security job to do and, and, yeah, it's just, and it's fundamentally changed so much about everything that, that we do and the way that we approach work that you can almost forget that, yeah, we, we have a day job and there's other things that we need to be thinking about doing as well. It's, you know, the, the, the simple fact of life now is that you, you really have a conversation that isn't about COVID. Uh, and I think you can really get blinkered as the fact that you know, there's, a, there's another world out there and there are other things that are, that are still continuing to happen and that we still have to manage. Well, that was my take on it. I have very limited experience uh, with security in Europe, just a slight amount uh, based on my, my old corporate job. But it seemed to me that security was a universal language. There were basics for security that everybody in the world adhered to and followed best practices. And then all of a sudden COVID came along. Security practices changed, I think, depending on the culture that was utilized at them. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I think... You know, I, I look at what I've seen. So, you know, my role at Aon, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I work for a very large organization, so I get to see what happens inside, but I also interact quite a bit with, with Aon clients. So, you know, organizations that we have a, an, an insurance relationship with, a risk management relationship, I've also, you know, I, I do some work with them to support them. And, and that's given me a lot of, a lot of insight into different organizations. And, and, and I, I almost feel like you can split the way people have, responded into two different categories you've you've got security organizations that frankly haven't really responded that well um, possibly because they haven't really been able to look outside of their own of their own horizons and over, over outside of their own borders and as a result have struggled and then you've got others that have 
probably taken a wider enterprise view of the organization and have come out of this really well. Um, you know, it, has, it, it really has separated, I think, the approaches that people have brought to the security organization. You're either focusing on on, on, the, on your day job and really not looking beyond that, or you've, you've looked further afield and actually been able to offer a bigger level of support to an organization. So I think it's the difference between being quite insular, being very security focused, and then being in more of an enterprise risk approach. And I think people who've taken an enterprise risk approach have, have actually been much more successful um, and, and are coming out of COVID probably stronger than they went into it as an organization. So as COVID turned us into uh, security and healthcare practitioners, meaning people didn't know what to do with this at first, and so they gave it to security to handle. You guys do screening. You check for temperatures. Not our Ballywick, really. Yeah, it, it isn't our Ballywick. But, but again, I think people who've come out of this well have, have said, okay, yeah, I'll take it. You know, it's my responsibility. So, you know, I'm, I'm probably one of the, the, the few lucky security professionals who, who dealt with something a little bit similar to this in the past. So when I worked in the mining industry, West Africa, we um, we were impacted by by Ebola, the Ebola outbreak that hit hit the West Africa region in 2014. And, and certainly in that case, you know, you're putting companies were in a position where they were looking at something that was significantly impacting their operations, but they didn't know where it sat. And and at that point, I put my hand up and said, "Well, I'll take it. It's you know, look at it from a crisis management perspective. Well, fine, I'll deal with it and I'll, I'll take responsibility for it." And I think COVID has, has had the same impact. If you think of your job as just security, um, then yeah, you you might have missed the opportunity here. I, I think for 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 so long, as an industry, you know, we keep having this conversation about how do you add value to the business. Well, I, I think people people who've who've looked at their role and thought, okay, yeah, I do security, but my role is ultimately, I guess, a risk management role, then this does impact what I do and I can be of value to the business by, by taking this on. And I think it's been a huge difference. And I think, and this is where I think there are going to be some security professionals who are, who are going to come out of COVID when, whenever that is or whatever the world looks like when we come out of it with a significantly enhanced portfolio and profile within their own businesses, because they've, they put their hand up and they've and they've managed the risk. They've they've managed the challenge that's that's been brought to the business. And, and frankly, there are very few people who have managed this before and have dealt with this situation before. But some people have 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 embraced the opportunity. You know, that's it's well said. And here's my take on it. What I'm seeing are people stepping into leadership roles that were not there before, or they've created leadership roles by their actions. Because when everything yeah. goes to heck, people turn to what the police, security, they turn to authority to help, help to help with things. And, and, and people in our profession are stepping up and saying, listen, I'll take that leadership role. I'll help drive these, these changing issues and cultures and security practices. And, and when we own it, I think that really helps improve everybody's condition. Are you finding that your role is becoming much more high profile in the leadership area? I think you've just you've you've just nailed I think a, a really key point here. There are people who are appointed managers, and then there are people who step up to be leaders. And, and I and I think the people who come out of this stronger are the ones who who might not have a typical leadership role or a, a role that's classified as a leadership role, but they've stepped up as leaders in the business. Um, and, and you know you've seen an opportunity to add value. You've seen an opportunity 
to support the business to again to to manage that risk and you've shown yourself to be a leader and and, I, and again i think the people who will come out of covid stronger and and the functions that will come out of it stronger will be the people who have shown themselves to be invaluable to the business now you don't have to be titled a director or you don't have to have 16 direct reports to to do that if if you're somebody who you know has embraced the challenge and you've and you've managed the risk and you've supported the business to to help their employees and keep the keep the keep the business running then you're a leader and and I and, and I think I think in covid in a lot of respects this has really separated the managers and the leaders this is not often talked about but let's talk about the other side of leadership is following right you need your staff your crew your team are you finding that your team has changing attitudes about leadership in other words let's put, put covid in the mix again 50% of the people in the world think COVID's a serious problem. 50% think, well, we'll get through it, right? And on your team, you're going to have some kind of representation like that. Are you finding this is quite a challenge to your leadership? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, particularly in the early stages of COVID, I think a lot of people were probably in a similar boat and, and had a, a similar approach. And a lot of people went through the same evolution. Like you're, you're dealing with something we haven't dealt with before. We're all in the same boat. And then as things progress, yeah, you've, you've seen people go off in, in different directions. I, I think it's challenged leaders to, to acknowledge that to, you have to lead the whole employee. It's not just what happens at work. Now you're much more involved on, whatever, on, on people's lives. You know, I'm sitting in my kitchen right now, um, you know, talking to you. Um, I was on a Zoom call earlier, and you know, people who I'm on a Zoom call with can see in, into my into my home in a way that I've never been comfortable with in the past. But that's just the reality of, of where we are right now. And you know, it's not just nine to five anymore. You are really talking about people's lives. You're talking about what you know, from the moment they get up and start checking their emails to the moment they go to bed. You you have a much bigger focus. And, and, and from a leadership perspective, I think what it's the, this situation has demonstrated that people are different and people do have very different needs. So yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think as this has gone on, it's become much more apparent that the more people that work for you and the more people who are part of your team, the more different needs and, and requirements that you have to support that. So yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's really changed the way you have to approach managing teams. And I've certainly, I've certainly seen that with, with, with my colleagues and the people that, uh, that I work with. So do you think there's a new leadership style in Europe? Now, I, I know that's a tough question because every country has a different culture. Some are similar, some are completely opposite in one way. Has your style changed personally? And do you think that there's kind of an overall new style to this security management in Europe? There is. Again, for a long time, we talked about the importance of things like emotional intelligence. Uh, we talked for a long time about things like the importance of work-life balance. Um, this might be a little bit controversial to say, but I often felt that work-life balance in the past was was a myth um, it was something people like to say it was you know it was, it was the right thing to say to employees but we didn't really do it like you can you can have the life bit as long as you do the work bit first um, and that's that has changed yeah people have had to to change and again I think I think the managers that have come out of this well and leaders that have come out of this situation well are the, are the leaders who've, who've appreciated that um, you have to be much more aware of emotions and more than just the work element of, of your of your team and, and the 
people that you work with. So yeah, I'm definitely seeing a change. I, you know, from a, from an Aon perspective, just the way that, that we have approached um, leadership, there has been a much bigger focus from very senior leaders in the, in the business to be much more present, to be much more visible, to, to, to be having um, more opportunities to talk and to share. Um, and I, and I, and I, and I do think, that this has had such a big impact on everyone's life that there has been an, an acknowledgement that you just can't manage people the way that you used to before. Um, you certainly can't lead people the way you used to before because people are ultimately going to get burned out and they're just going to stop following you. But um, yeah, I think there has been a change. Now, the UK culture, I think, you know, there is quite a hierarchical view of, um, of management that is very old school British that, um, you know, there is a, there's, there's a rank structure and you follow that, that I think is quite ingrained in particularly older generations in, in, in British society. That's changing and it's having to change because it just, you know, that idea of just do as I say doesn't, doesn't really work anymore. So yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing changes and I think people are being forced to change. Um, and, and, and I think frankly, those who aren't able to, to adapt probably aren't going to come out of this with a lot of credit. Um, and, and frankly, some might not come out of it with jobs. I, and I appreciate that's probably quite a strong statement to make, but, but I think, you know, organizations have, have, have our understanding that it takes more than just um, ordering people what to do to be a good manager. Well, very insightful. I agree with you 100%. Uh, we're not sure what this is going to look like, but having said that, let's put on the James Morris crystal ball uh, and tell me how this is going to look one or two years from now. Form follows function, one of the basics of physics, right? We have a new function now. What's it going to look like in one or two years? <laughs> yeah, good question. Uh, one or two years. Look, I, I think I came out of the mining industry, and the mining industry had a very strong approach. Sorry, the, the approach to, to security was security was part of a, a group that typically included health and safety, environment, sustainability, um, it was more than just security. You were part of more of a, you know, some some organizations used to call it more of a protection of, of asset um, approach. Now, again, I appreciate that it has a slightly different connotation than for, for security professionals. But, you know, I, I think it's, I think the future of the industry from a, a business value perspective is much more about risk management that it is more about how you how you protect your assets that's you know that's that's a given but it's not just um it's not just security it's everything else that comes with it and, and i and i do think the future of the industry could be much more um holistic where you have much more kind of security safety sustainability roles ingrained in I think that um, again. I think that the I think that professionals and organisations that have come out of the COVID situation better are going to be ones that have that have taken much more of a holistic approach, where you 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 appreciate there aren't really any hard borders anymore between. Sorry, there aren't you know, the, the borders between you know uh, health and safety and, and security and, and, and crisis management and business continuity. That it's more of a blob now, and they work they work better together. Um, and I and I and I and I think that I, I do think this will see some organisations more, more move more in that direction. But I also think the reality is that for some who 
will come out of this feeling like maybe they didn't manage the situation very well. It's going to be a real challenge for security professionals who are, I think, going to have to going to have to rebuild some confidence with with organizations. You know, you made the point earlier about who owns this. Is it a security thing because nobody else wants it? Well, there's the downside of that is who takes responsibility for something that hasn't gone well. Well, it, well is it security because nobody else owns it? Um, so I do think you're going to get a bit of a split. I think you're going to get some people who are riding high and it gives them an of opportunity to, to build on success and you're going to have others that are unfortunately having to rebuild a lot of confidence so i think i think you can get a bit of a split in, in in the professional you know the optimist in me says that this has been a great opportunity and we can push the industry forward the the pessimist in me says that for some it's going to, going to have been a real challenge and, and, and there's going to be a lot of work to do that comes out of this mr james always a pleasure to speak with you I always feel better about the security business when I talk to you, by the way. I got to say. Well played, <laughs> my sorry. friend. Well played. Thanks for coming on Security Management Thank Highlights. You. Thank you very much. This episode of Security Management Highlights is sponsored by Alert Enterprise, cyber physical security convergence with a human centered approach, fueling digital transformation and unlocking competitive advantage. Alertenterprise.com. That's security 2.0.